and welcome to the latest Funds Fan Podcast, hosted by Kyle Caldwell and Sam Benstead. Sam, who is Deputy Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor, carries out the Fund Manager interview for this episode. So Sam, I'll leave it to you to tell our listeners who you chatted to and to give a taster of some of the main talking points. Thanks, Kyle. This week I interviewed Simon Barnard, who manages the Smithson Investment Trust. It was a really interesting conversation, given what stock markets are doing at the moment. Simon invests, invests in expensive stocks that investors are currently dumping, meaning the trust shares are down about 40%. But he's not worried about his portfolio and has been very active. He told me that he's been buying up shares he likes for what he thinks are bargain prices, but also revealed what Terry Smith, who founded the investment firm behind the trust, is telling his colleagues about how to invest during difficult periods. Sam, sounds like there was plenty of interesting points discussed, so do stay tuned for that. Prior to that interview with Smithson, as usual, myself and Sam are going to chat through a couple of funds and investment trust news items. So Sam, it's been a very challenging couple of months for investors. Most markets are in negative territory year to date, and by extension, most funds and investment trusts have also posted losses. At such times, it's interesting to find out how the most popular funds and investment trust fund managers are responding to stock market volatility. Sam, you took a look at how Teddy Smith has been playing the sell-off. Given he's a buy-and-hold investor, his investors wouldn't expect there to be a huge amount of changes. But there have been some interesting moves made by Smith. Yeah, there have. And actually, he's been pretty active. Terry's been gradually moving his portfolio into technology stocks, but the pace really picked up this year. He capitalised on share price weakness to buy Adobe and Alphabet shares, both for huge technology stocks with dominant software and search businesses that are extremely profitable. To fund the purchases, he got rid of all of his Johnson Johnson shares. Healthcare is considered a defensive sector that will keep making money regardless of the economic conditions. J&J has performed well this year, so he was selling high and buying low. It'll be interesting to see if this was the right thing to do, as investors digest inflation data and the reaction from central banks. Scottish Mortgage, meanwhile, which is the most popular investment trust among Interactive Investor customers, revealed in our previous podcast that it's been responding to the stock market sell-off by topping up its holding in Moderna, which over the past six months has seen its share price halve. To help fund that purchase, its position in Amazon has been reduced And elsewhere, it's interesting to note that um, the trust is keeping the faith with Netflix, despite its recent announcement of a sharp drop, well, a sharp and an unexpected drop in subscribers. As Lawrence Baines, the Deputy Fund Manager of Scottish Mortgage, pointed out in our previous podcast, while himself and lead manager Tom Slater have not been making a huge number of changes to the portfolio, sell-offs do give investors opportunities to pick up shares at cheaper prices. Nick Train, another buy and hold investor, has been less active than both Smith and the full managers of Scottish Mortgage, but his investors would expect him to be, as it is a red letter day whenever he does introduce a new holding or exit a holding. Train did, though recently, add the first new holding to Lindsay Train Global Equity in three years, and that was a credit scoring firm, Fair Isaac Corporation. Train's UK strategies have been more under the cosh than the global fund. In fact, Train moved earlier this month to apologise for the performance of one of the UK portfolios, the Finsby Growth and Income Trust, when it reported its latest half-yearly results. 
Sam, could you run through how the trust performed and what Train said? His UK Stocks Trust in the six months to the 31st of March 2022 fell 2.2% and its share price dropped 3%. In comparison, its benchmark index, the FTSE All Share, rose by 4.7% over the same period. This marks a third six-month period of failing to beat its benchmark. Train apologised and in his statement to investors, and I quote, he said, I am sorry that the long-standing Linsel Train investment approach and the long-standing major holdings in the portfolio have failed to deliver acceptable performance for your company over what is now no trivial period. He also apologised again when I saw him speak at a conference last week. This is not the first time Nick Train has apologised. He, um, he also said sorry in 2017 when one of his biggest holdings, Pearson, saw its share price fall heavily in response to cutting its dividends. In response, uh, the holding in Pearson was reduced and it's no longer held. Personally, I think it is refreshing to see a fund manager apologise and not hide behind a bad spell of performance, which, to be honest, a lot of fund managers do, as they, uh, they don't want their investors to notice when things are going wrong and then hit the sell button. Well, that's my cynical view of it anyway. But this time around, I don't think the apology was necessary um, as the perform- as the underperformance um, of Nick Train's funds investment trusts are coming at a time when his investment style of buying high-quality growth shares is firmly out of favour um, due to high levels of inflation and increases in interest rates. There's a clear style headwind which is negatively impacting that investment style's performance. So you would not expect Train's funds or investment trusts to thrive in this environment. And in addition, you know, one year, it's a very short-term time period and Train's investors will certainly have no complaints over the performance that he's delivered over longer time periods, such as five and 10 years. What's your take on all this, Sam? Do you think Train needed to say sorry? Um, I don't. I'm not surprised that he did, but I don't think he actually needed to. If I was a shareholder in Finsbury Growth and Income, I wouldn't be complaining about 18 months of below benchmark performance after nearly two decades of beating the market. Nick Train's a big character in the industry and he has a lot of respect from DIY and professional investors. When I saw him talk last week, he went through his investment case again, looking at stocks like Diageo, Unilever, the London Stock Exchange. And he still really believes in these companies and actually he made a very, very convincing case for owning them. The next news story we're going to move on to is a piece of analysis carried out by Sam on the four wealth preservation investment trusts. Sam looked at how each trust has fared during three rocky periods for markets this year, the COVID-19 sell-off and the financial crisis. So Sam, what were, you, what were your main conclusions from your research? Yeah, it was a really interesting research exercise. Um, I think investors tend to group rougher investment company, personal assets, capital gearing and RIT capital partners together. But in reality, they are run quite differently and have had different levels of success during various stock market crashes. The standout winner was rougher due to savvy bets on energy stocks and the direction of interest rates by interest rate options. It is up about 10% this year and was also positive during the COVID crash and the 2008 financial crisis. No other trust achieved that feat. Capital gearing and personal assets have both lost money this year, but only just, while RIT is having a really tough time, losing more than 10%. This follows double-digit losses in the past two big market crashes for the trust that manages the money of the Rothschild banking dynasty. 
And as you pointed out in your analysis, Sam, which can be found on our website, ii.co.uk, there's a lot of differences between how the four trusts seek to attempt to protect capital. So for investors looking at potentially adding some defense to their portfolios, you don't have to just pick one of the four as you won't be doubling up exposure given that they all take different approaches in an attempt to limit losses when stock markets fall heavily. And finally, before we move on to the full manager interview, Interact Investor announced earlier this week that the Threadneedle UK Social Bond Fund, a member of the ACE40 list of sustainable funds, has been placed under formal review in response to its fund manager, Simon Bond, announcing that he will retire from fund management next year. Our fund manager guest is Simon Barnard, manager of the Smithson Investment Trust. Simon, thank you for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. So you follow a similar investment approach to Fundsmith Equity, but apply it to small and mid-sized companies. What is the evidence that a quality growth approach also works for smaller stocks? Well, the first thing to say is that the stocks we are buying in the Smithson Investment Trust are actually not that small. Um, they're actually more mid cap size. So the median size in the portfolio is around six billion pounds. Uh, and actually, that would be a, a, at the bottom end of the FTSE 100. So half of our stocks would, would technically fall into the FTSE 100. Um, but the second thing is that the whole uh, origins of the Smith Investment Trust came about when Terry Smith, who runs Fundsmith, uh, was asked what companies had outperformed his Fundsmith fund. And um, he looked across the whole market and many types of companies that he would consider buying, i.e. quality growth companies, that had outperformed his fund were just smaller cap than the ones he did own, bearing in mind that Fundsmith owned companies above 100 billion in size mostly. So actually, um, the whole way of coming about was the fact that these companies do outperform and do well uh, in that quality growth spectrum. Great. And do you know any, is there any data on, on that level of outperformance? What was the kind of data point which made Terry so, um, so drawn to these smaller companies? I don't think there are any actual data points um, for a group in aggregate. He just searched out those companies that had outperformed his fund, which I think had gone up over 200% at the time. Um, and so it was those companies that had done better than his since the inception of the Fundsmith Equity Fund. And after a strong start to performance at launch about three years ago, the trust has now dropped about 35% this year. So quite a sudden downturn in performance. What is behind this? Is this due to the macroeconomic backdrop or has it been stock selection? Why have we seen this this one third loss in, um, in value? Oh, the vast majority is down to the macroeconomic outlook. I mean, um, because we own high growing quality companies, a lot of the move in interest rate expectations by people in the market have meant that they are valuing that uh, future growth in earnings at a much lower rate today than they did, say, six months ago. And that overall has caused the biggest impact on the portfolio. I mean, there have been a couple of stocks in the last six months that have disappointed us in fundamental terms, um, but that really is two out of about 32. Um, so the vast majority is definitely macro. Great. And let's go into those two stocks. Which were the ones that actually have done less well than um, 
than you thought you might they might in this environment? Well, one of those was Massimo. This is a US healthcare company that makes medical devices. It focuses on blood oxygenation. So if you've ever been into hospital and you've had a sensor put on the end of your finger to measure your pulse rate and blood oxygenation levels, the uh, high likelihood is that that was made by Massimo. Um, and interestingly, early on this year, they announced to the market that they made an acquisition of a sound company, a company called Sound United, and they produce um, hi-fi separate stereos uh, with the brands Danon, Marantz, um, and uh, Bowles and Wilkins. And it really took the market and us by some surprise because obviously it was a complete departure from their medical device um, sector that they'd currently uh, been in up to that point. Um, but what we're starting to learn, and the company hasn't announced this officially because they're, uh, say, for competitive reasons, they're holding off releasing more information until September. Uh, but it appears that actually they're looking to use the earbuds technology from Denon and others to produce sensors or medical sensors that you can wear in your ears instead of on your finger. Uh, and you can do this potentially from home. Um, and maybe they will also augment your hearing, so a type of hearing aid as well. So actually, on the face of it, it looks a little unusual. After we've done a lot of digging, it, uh, it sounds like it might make sense. But again, we'll wait until September for full information. But in the meantime, the shares have performed badly on that uncertainty. And you said the um, the macroeconomic factor was the main reason for this drop. Was has the sell-off been more severe than you expected? And just going into the fundamentals of the companies you own, I mean, the cost of debt is going up, um, and inflation is rising. What makes your your companies kind of suitable for this macroeconomic environment? Certainly, the sell-off has been very sharp and has been disappointing for all of us. Um, it's very hard to expect anything in the future in macroeconomics. I mean, no one could have predicted any of the events we've had over the last two years. So it's hard to say that I did or didn't expect such a sharp drop. But certainly, uh, it has been uh, very uh, sharp and uh, and very disappointing. But um, in terms of the fundamentals, um, bear in mind that our companies have very little debt. In fact, as a whole, um, the companies are net cash on average. So uh, interest rates increasing won't actually affect the fundamental performance of our companies. And then on inflation, um, our companies have very high margins and specifically gross margins. So that is the difference between the selling price and the price it costs to just produce the goods. So nothing to do with transporting or selling them, just the raw materials and labor that goes into producing the goods. And because our companies have very high gross margins, that means that as inflation ticks up, the cost base, which gets inflated, is relatively lower than the cost bases of the companies in the rest of the market, which have much lower margins overall, therefore higher raw material costs, which means that overall, to be able to offset that inflation, our companies only need to put up their prices a little bit, whereas most other companies in the market would have to put up prices a lot more to offset that, that inflation, if indeed they can. And bear in mind that our companies are all chosen because of their strong competitive dynamic and the fact that they are very well placed in their niche markets and they do have pricing power. So we hope that they will be able to offset that with pricing should they choose to do so. And this pricing power, have you seen it demonstrated in, um, in recent company reports? And can you give some examples 
where your investments have actually pushed on higher input costs to um to their customers? Yes, we've got many examples. Ayo Smith is a good one. This is a US manufacturer of water heaters and boilers. So you can imagine a lot of raw material costs in the form of steel, other metals, um, and a lot of labor cost goes into that. And over the past 18 months, they have put up their end prices by 50%, that's five zero percent um, And these clearly are not low-cost items in the first place. There's several thousand dollars in some cases. So uh, that was a good example where they have more than offset um, the price increase in those metals. Um, I'll also give you a slightly different example, uh, which is Fevertree, uh, the UK-based premium tonics manufacturer. Now, this is an interesting case where they are very dominant in their market, particularly in the UK, but even in international markets. So in the UK, they have 90% of the market. That means to say that they are almost 10 times bigger than all the competition put together. Um, and they tell us that they are seeing inflation in packaging costs, so in glass bottling costs and cans, um, and that they can put prices up if they chose to, simply because the competition would just follow them and the market would be reset in a way. But actually, they've chosen not to do that because they believe that that would put even further pressure on their smaller competitors who will be suffering more than they can, bearing in mind that Fever Tree with its uh, additional scale can achieve better pricing on its input costs in the first place. So that's an example where they've explicitly told us that they could do it, but they've chosen not to. And is that something you want to hear from management, that actually they have the power to put up prices but aren't putting them up yet? Or... Would you actually be happy if they passed on price at the moment so their profit margins and their profits would um, would keep growing? What, what's your preferred response from, from management? I think that answer to that question really depends on your time horizon. From our perspective, we're looking to invest in these companies for the next five to 10 years. So we really want management to do what's best for the long-term outlook of the company. And I believe in this case, and actually in many cases, the best um, decision for the long term for the company is to hold back prices because ultimately when we do increase prices as I indicated you create a type of umbrella under which smaller competitors can flourish which by which I mean they can also put up their prices to survive and maybe make a decent profit but still not get killed by um, the larger player having a lower price than them. Um, whereas of course as Future is doing if you keep uh, your price, uh, you know, cap on your prices, knowing that you'll take a slight margin hit, but um, your competitors will suffer much more and actually ultimately you might end up gaining market share from those that lose out. Clearly, that's better for the longer term uh, uh, business because ultimately that inflation will subside or ultimately maybe you will nudge up prices over time to regain those margins that you once had. Um, I think, though, on the flip side, if you're only in, interested in investing in a company like Fever Tree over the next 12 months, clearly you'd want them to push prices as high as possible to get a, a short-term return as, as fast as possible and to make sure those margins stayed steady or even went up in the short term. Uh, but clearly, that's not what we would want. One of your other big UK investments is Rightmove. What is the outlook for this company in the face of rising interest rates and you know, a short-term boom perhaps in house prices, if there is a drop in the housing market, is this going to be good or bad news uh, for the for the property platform? In the very short term, it doesn't matter because the way that Rightmove does business is that it charges estate agents a subscription every month 
to uh, use the Rightmove website. And for that subscription price, estate agents can list as many houses or as few houses and at whatever price they want. So in the short term, if the prices of houses that are being advertised on Rightmove fluctuate or even the number that are being sold fluctuate, it makes no difference because the agents still pay the same subscription sum every month. Um, now, interestingly, in this period of um, a short-term boom in the housing market in the UK, it hasn't been as good for Rightmove as you might think, because based on that business model I just described, obviously what helps Rightmove is if there are more estate agents in the market, therefore paying subscriptions. And at this current time, despite the very strong house prices, there are actually a shortage of good housing stock coming onto the market. And that is hampering the startup of new estate agents. So although there are profits there for estate agents, new ones can't be formed because they literally can't get hold of housing stock to sell. Now, once the housing market cools off slightly, um, potentially and hopefully because more houses are coming to the market than are being sold, then new agents can come and try and get a hold of those listings and start their businesses, which actually would help Rightmove in that period. So the question is, what really hurts Rightmove? Well, obviously, if there are fewer estate agents, then that would hurt Rightmove. And so if we were to go into a meaningful down cycle in the UK housing market where prices and transactions were down for a reasonable length of time, which meant that estate agents ended up going out of business, well, then that starts affecting Rightmove and some profits would fall in that scenario. How prepared are the team for a long period out of favour? You own expensive stocks for, for the reasons you've described, but these types of companies tend to perform worse when, when interest rates go up because the value of future profits is, um, is reduced by, by investors. So how prepared are you for a period out of favour? Um, and is, has there been a message from, from Terry Smith about what to do when things aren't going your way in markets? Uh, I would have to slightly disagree with a couple of points you made there. The first point is um, we don't believe our stocks are expensive. They have high ratings, um, but that is accompanied by high growth and a very high quality company. So yes, we were paying up for that company, but we believe what we're getting is actually good value for what we're paying. That's the first point. The second point is that the action that you describe of the share prices being adjusted because interest rates obviously cause the valuation of that future growth in earnings to be reduced. That is all true, but the important thing is interest rate expectations rather than actual interest rates. So the interesting thing is when we look at uh, back in December, and now I focus on the US Federal Reserve, expectations for interest rate increases in 2022, at the start of the year, were only for about three hikes by commentators in the marketplace. Uh, but now the Fed has got a lot more hawkish, is communicating a lot more around aggressive rate hikes throughout the course of the year. And now, as we stand today, people are expecting more like 11 rate hikes for this year. So you can see that's a big shift in expectations, even though in reality, we've only had one interest rate increase during that period. So if we extrapolate that, then the shares will stop reacting when interest rate expectations peak rather than the interest rates themselves. So who knows? Maybe 11 rates this year is the most we'll see. I mean, markets tend to overshoot on both sides. So maybe 
interest rate expectations will continue going up and will surpass what will actually come to pass. But the important thing is that the, sh the shares will stop moving when expectations stop moving. We don't have to wait for all the interest rates to actually play out. And then the final point, um, how, how will we prepare for a longer period and any messages from Terry Smith? Well, um, I mean, we're, we're perfectly happy. As I said, you know, we've got a long-term uh, investment horizon. So we believe that these companies will produce very good shareholder returns over the next five to 10 years. And that's why we're happy to hold them. We're clearly disappointed with the performance in the short term. Um, but as long as those company fundamentals continue to look good over the next five plus years, then we will be happy holders of those. And we will continue uh, to explain our reasons for holding them as time goes on. Um, Terry Smith has been very supportive, as you might imagine. Um, he's a very calm individual, and he has explained that in his view, uh, obviously markets will come back over time. But of course, none of us know when that might actually happen. Have you been made, making any recent um, portfolio changes to take advantage of um, or lower share prices in companies you'd like? Yes, absolutely. So we entered the euro with a little bit of cash in the portfolio. Um, we invested that cash as the share prices fell uh, into uh, several existing positions and also two new positions. Uh, one is AdTech, a Swedish industrial company, and the other is Montclair, an Italian luxury goods company. And as time has gone on uh, this year, we have also uh, reduced some position sizes in those companies that have performed well this year or held up well um, and recycled that into certain companies that uh, whose share prices have done particularly badly, but where we uh, are very optimistic um, over the next couple of years, let alone the next five to 10 years. So we try to take advantage of what we think is um, highly irrational moves in those share prices. And what were those companies that you, um, that you invested into that had fallen a lot, but unjustifiably? Uh, one was Ambu, actually, that um, I just touched on earlier. Uh, this is a Danish medical device company. And it has been investing over the past couple of years in um, making a much larger sales force and R&D center so that they can launch a lot of new products over the next coming years. So as you might imagine, they have taken on a lot of cost onto their P&L um, before these new products are launched. And therefore, we don't yet have the revenue to offset those costs. We're now just at the point where they're about to launch a series of new products over the next two years. And we are therefore optimistic that the revenue should increase and along with that free cash flow and therefore improving the margins that have dipped over the past 12 months or so. Of course, this has all coincided with the market sentiment being very low. And therefore, as you might imagine, the share price has been hit particularly hard. And you said you were using up some of your, your cash balance to buy, um, to buy stocks at a big discount. How much of that have you, have you used up? Have you got any cash left that you're waiting to deploy? We've used it all. There's no cash remaining. Great. I guess that must be quite unique in the three, four years that you've been running the trust. Has this been one of the best buying opportunities that you've seen? The second best buying. The first one was March 2020. And similarly, uh, we were very active during that period. It's interesting. We uh, try to communicate to our investors that we have very long holding periods, obviously, and that means that we have very low stock turnover. So um, typically, our turnover is 
under 10% in any given year, which, you know, therefore equates to about a 10-year holding period. But in uh, March and April of 2020, our turnover spiked to above 20%, where we took a lot of action to take advantage of lower prices. And I suspect when the numbers are published this year, you'll discover that there will be a similar level of turnover in Q1 and Q2 of this year. The discount is now quite wide. It's about 9-10%. Has the board been taking steps to narrow this? Yes, they have. They've been buying back shares, I think started uh, about two or three weeks ago. Um, I can't speak on their behalf, um, but I suspect that they will look to continue that as long as there is a discount. And finally, the question we ask all our interviewees, do you personally invest in the trust? Yes, the vast majority of my investable wealth is in the trust. That includes all of my pension and uh, pretty much all of the um, available cash that I have. The only remaining investable cash that I have goes into the Fundsworth Equity Fund. And the reason for that is because I don't intend on ever selling my Swiss and shares. So if I do need to generate uh, any liquidity for any reason, then I have the Fundsworth Equity Fund available to me um, to retrieve that cash. Simon, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that's all we have time for today. We hope you enjoyed listening. And if you are a fan of the Funds Fan Podcast, do give us a like and subscribe. We'll be back in early June. But in the meantime, check out ii.co.uk for our analysis of funds, investment trusts and exchange traded funds.